lots happening on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed. There's a strand in my books. Whenever people feel something like that, be careful, because they feel that they are licensed to do anything. God is allowing them to do it. And uh, so I'm sure he went to his grave with an untroubled conscience about the massacres in Ireland because he would have believed that this was God's will. It was happening because God willed it. I stood up and I said, why are we not using Parkins- the smell of Parkinson's to diagnose it earlier? It's a tough thing to to carry that I was born in Dublin but uh, I have from high authority that I was conceived in Kerry <laughs> which <laughs> so I think a lot of people think they're from a certain area but I think they might have to ask some tougher questions And in the afternoon concerned callers like Betty were talking to Joe on the live line Well BBC News are now reporting that the Queen uh, immediate family have been informed and they're gone to Balmoral but they're also saying that the Queen is comfortable and resting so there seems to be a free song going around everywhere this morning from the House of Commons to media organisations about the Queen's health and I'm just wondering does that mean Betty Mitchell is in Birmingham Betty does that mean everyone in the UK are glued to their televisions now and worried and upset? Well, I don't know about anybody else. I don't watch television in the day, Joe, but I've just turned it on myself. And as I say, I don't know about the rest of the nation, yeah. but the, everybody's back at school and back at work. So, But I'm sure everybody will be... They won't be surprised. Well, they, I will, mean, well, they is, will be surprised. She's, she's been in rude good health. She's been, Well, of course, but I mean, yeah. since... Prince Philip died. She's been going down slowly but surely. And I was just looking at her on Tuesday with Liz Trust, and I just thought, oh, gosh, I don't think you got too long, Your Majesty. But that's, that's in the hands of the Lord. Yeah, but exactly. she, she God, will be missed, Joe. She's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful woman. Well, how important is she in the eyes of British people? Oh, she's very high, top of the, top of the list, I would say, without a doubt, Joe. Okay, she so. really has been a wonderful queen, you know, and uh, she's had a lot to put up with, like most of us do with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So, the so, doc- the so, so that- doctor, I think what raised most people's concern this morning was doctors said they were concerned for her health. Then Prince William and Camilla arrived and then um, Charles obviously arrived. Yeah, well, she's just, she is 96, Joe. She is fading away slowly but surely. The day has to come. I don't think she's that ill. Yeah, yeah I, hopefully. I think hopefully, she is hopefully. nearing her end. When that, that happens, that's in the lap of the Lord, isn't it? Yeah, but Britain will be in But she's some, a wonderful woman and she okay, will yeah. be sadly missed and there'll be a lot of tears when she goes, I'm sure of that, Joe. OK, uh, Louise Hassan. Louise is in Dublin 15. Louise, you're concerned about the Queen as well. I only just found out when uh, you guys called me, so I'm... Oh. I'm I'm in bits. Like I'm I, I'm really upset. Like I'm devastated. She's like my nan. She's been, um, part, you know, she's been part of my life for the whole of my life. Like you know, so like who who is in your life like for the whole of your life? Like she's like your family. Yeah. Okay. Princess Anne now has arrived at Balmoral. Oh yeah, she's. Uh, I was Prince, saying, I was Prince William friend, and Andrew and Edward are travelling to Balmoral. Oh yeah, she's definitely. No, but the, but the BBC are also reporting that she's comfortable and resting. So that's not. But I tell you, but, but what? Well, why? Why, Louise? Has she? You live in Dublin. Why is she such a big part in your your life? Because she's been in. Uh, she's the constant in your life. Like when everything else is 
fluid and moving, she's constant. Like, she's always been there. Like, I haven't known anybody else, so... Um, she she really is like you, you can't explain it unless you're English and brought up and you know from a child with her as the yeah. queen. You she is really like your nan. You you can't okay. you know you, you probably don't understand because no. Well, explain it to me, Louise. Come on, you've time. You, because you... because like you know even I remember being at the Silver Jubilee street parties like okay. in the seventies. Yeah. Do you know like and you know I would sometimes say it to people like like last year like I'd say I had an Anna's horribleness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. she's and and she was the con. You know, she was always the calm face when everything in the world felt like hard. Uh, yeah, tough and 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 unbalanced. And you know, like she'd come okay. on and she would always be the the calm, cool face. You know, and she was not so like. You know, I wouldn't say like I, I'm not a royalist. Like yeah. it's my nan. Like my okay. nan okay, when that's... when she had a house built, they, uh, Charles and Diana were getting married that year, and she had a brick built into the house with okay. a Charles and Diana commemoration <laughs> brick. Brilliant. Louise, there. Then Michael in the hint called Joe. You've been following Sky News all morning. I presume like a lot of people in the UK, but you're in the hint. But I presume like a lot of people in the UK, they're watching two or three channels at the same time now. Every absolutely. You know, there's huge concern. And what what is your reading of what's been said on the well, UK she's 96, media? You know, she's 96. They'll be, the doctors will be caring for her. But, you know, the fact that all the family have moved up there, you know, there's no doubt about it. She is very seriously ill. Well, it looks like to use that phrase we use here a lot, the family have been sent for. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And of course, you know, my interaction there with the Queen in 2011 when she came to Ireland for that magnificent visit, uh, I was the artist for the Queen's visit and mm. uh, over the next four or five years she invited me to Buckingham Palace to bring three different paintings over there which are now in the Royal Collection. And the 211 so, visit was in May 2011 was um, was a, a game changer for many people's views uh, of the Queen. Many people, obviously a lot of people in Ireland liked her an awful lot because of the British media and our contact with them. She's a daily part of our news story, our news cycle. But I think she did in her speech in, the, speech in, our, in Dublin Castle, Uchtaran Agus Akkorja's speech, her visit to the Garden of Remembrance, laying the wreath, um, a visit to Croke Park, her visit to Cork, her visit to Cashel, um, went, went down enormously well with people, enormously well. Um, and she, I think she did say or communicated herself uh, and Philip communicated to people that it was one of the most enjoyable visits they've ever been on. Well, they also told me in Buckingham Palace that they got more correspondence as a result of that visit to Ireland than they got for any other royal visit that she made. Michael there, then later X Factor singer Mary Byrne. Uh, Mary Byrne, Mary, you met the Queen when she was here in 2011. I did, and I thought she was a lovely lady. Look, I understand where all the... And you sang for her as well. Coming. You I sang did sing for her, her yeah. and, and I spoke to her, and, and she was a lovely lady. Look, I'm not a royalist by no means, and I know the history of our country, but we have to stop living in the past. And listen, the past is, is, is hurtful, and it, it, it's there, and we cannot get rid of it. But this lady, really, like, she has tried everything. I think she has tried everything to try and make, you know, relationships better with us. Mm. With, with and Ireland. what did she say and, to you, Mary, when you mm, met her in, 
it was very funny because when she took me hand, we were told just to grip her hand. She grabs my hand okay. and she held it like like a like an ordinary person that she is. She, she may be a queen to them, but she's an did, ordinary. Do you person. think she knew that you'd been such a sensation on? Oh, she said it to me. Oh, did she? What she say? Yeah, she actually said, "Your life must have changed now. I'm so happy for you." And I said, "Ma'am, did you do you watch it?" She said, "No, I don't." She says, "But you know, the young the young boys may 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 tape it now and then. They like to look at all that type of stuff. Okay. I may get to see it every so often." That's what the woman said to me. Okay. I didn't look at her as as a political thing. I looked at it as as a historical moment of you know this woman trying to make relations better with us. I I I, I agree, you know, that we we've suffered, we have, but so has everybody else. And we can't keep mm. living in the past. And, and I'm sorry for anyone that does. Mary Byrne on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Morning Ireland, the rising cost of living. Calls to the Money Advice and Budgeting Service, MABS, they're up actually 63% for August 2022 compared to August a year ago. And MABS says this shows how many people are already struggling with the rising cost of living. We'll have more on their message, which isn't a message of despair, by the way, and it's an important one uh, to get out there. We'll hear about that in a moment. But first, let's hear from a woman we're calling Sarah. Uh, It's not her real name, uh, but she lives on the East Coast and she contacted MABS uh, on the 1st of September. And here's Sarah talking to reporter Peter O'Connell. I'm actually stressed to the 19th. Like, I don't know when the next bill's coming from, when the next month's going to a week of shop. I mean, it's getting to the point that I've actually trained myself of only having a small bit of meal a day so I don't want to take it out of my child's mouth. Like, trying to put them to school and all is quite difficult. Sarah, not a real name, talking to reporter Peter O'Connell. Then Anya spoke to Michelle O'Hara of MABS. There's a lot of people out there. They're not sleeping. They're worrying about the bills at night. They're waking up in a bit of a panic about it all. What's your advice to them? That is a very, very natural reaction because it is hugely overwhelming when you receive a bill that you just do not have the resources to pay in full or to pay partially. And it can hit you completely out of the blue. And the advice that we would have is please don't suffer with this alone. MABS is a free service. We have a national helpline that's available five days a week and we have over 60 offices nationwide. We are the experts in this area to help you, to give you the advice that you would need to help you through this. It doesn't have to be just you on your own. There is absolutely no shame in not being able to pay your bills. That's a reality for many people at different times in their lives. But reach out for this free service. Come to us because, for example, like local knowledge, as I said, we've over 60 offices. So we have particular local knowledge in each of one of those locations where, for example, if you're uh, Sarah reference there not being able to eat that much in a particular day so we m- will have the knowledge in a particular location to send you to the likes of a food bank or to get you a food parcel delivered and then in terms of utility bills and so on we obviously have the expertise we are stakeholders with all of the energy companies and we have the knowledge to help you work through your situation the main message I want to get out this, this morning on you is please reach out you are not on your own 
come to Mabs. That's an important message. Uh, who is contacting you at the moment and who are the extra 60%? Yeah, so we've got a whole variety of people. Um, I suppose traditionally Mabs was created primarily focusing on people who are social welfare dependent. That has very much changed in the last number of years. And whereas all of the price increases, they're affecting us all, but depending on where your disposable cash lies, your disposable income at the end of the month gives you an indication of how far these uh, prices can stretch. So we're seeing families, we're seeing working families, working individuals. We see many people come to us for what we call self-help. So effectively what they're looking for is pointers and advice and uh, information and just ideas of what they can do themselves and they want to do it themselves and they go off and they may come back for additional advices and so on. Then there's another cohort of people where we represent uh, them. So we negotiate with their creditors. We sit down and have face-to-face meetings. Uh, So there's face-to-face appointments available in all MAB's offices as well and you don't have to wait very long for it. And the other thing to point out for people who are in immediate uh, risk of disconnection, for example, uh, Anya, there's an opportunity there to come to MABS and you will be considered as an emergency or an urgent matter. You'll be dealt with straight away. Right. Um, we're already seeing, you know, some of the shops have their Christmas, you know, goods on sale. Um, but there will be many households, you know, already feeling the pinch, worrying about the winter to come and wanting to provide their family with Christmas and worrying, yes. not knowing how they're going to do it already. So yes. is now the time to start planning? Absolutely. Planning is essential. Taking control of your situation is essential. And that that can add to the anxiety when something comes in through the door that you can't face because you really don't know where you are. Planning is absolutely essential into the future because and particularly coming up to Christmas, because generally speaking, if you put it off and put it off, you end up paying more for something because you run out of time, run out of resources and so on. There's also inflation. I mean, it's wrong. And there's also inflation. Exactly right. So planning Uh, looking at your budget, see, well, who do I actually have to buy for? Where can I can I research where I can actually get it? Is there a better value elsewhere? Can we decide with families that we do Chris Kindle this year, for example, take the pressure off where you can. But but the increases keep coming. The cost of borrowing is going up again today between the war in Ukraine and droughts in Europe and so on. Mm. Uh, Shortage of fertilisers, food inflation Mm. is likely to persist Mm. well into next year. This isn't going to go away in a hurry. No, certainly not. So what we would say to people is that the the first thing to do is to understand where's your money going every every week, every month on you. So looking back, and many of us forget what so we're spending. So start by keeping a diary every start day. Start by spending every cent. Take out a little notebook, write it down. Because again, when we're in this tap culture as well, and we're not using cash as much, it's it's far easier to tap, tap, the tap away. Like water, yeah. The money goes. And then you, you think, well, why is there nothing left in, in the particular account? Uh, we would ask you to track your spending. Take out your bank statements. Take out any other statements that you have. Have a look at all of the things that you're spending. Add them up. I mean, we have tools on Mabs.ie, budgeting tools that you can use and, and you can download and so on. And they they can help you as well. But just get in control of what your situation is currently. Look at expenditure and say, look, do I need to be spending all of these? One thing that we encourage people to look at 
is the likes of subscription services on you. So do I really need them all? Can I cut it down? And again, engagement is absolutely key. Bills don't go away. They continue to, to be there. You must either engage yourself with your creditor or we will do it for you in MABS okay. if you feel you're unable. Michelle O'Hara of MABS, the money advice and budgeting service, talking to Anya Lawler for Morning Ireland. And on Today with Claire Byrne, the extraordinary story of Joy Milne, a woman with a unique ability to smell Parkinson's. Scientists have developed a new diagnostic test for Parkinson's thanks to a Scottish woman's extraordinary sense of smell. Joy Milne's late husband, Les, was diagnosed with Parkinson's 12 years after she noticed a distinct change in his body odour. Now, Joy's unique ability is helping scientists devise new ways to detect the disease and Joy Joy joins me now. Joy, you're very welcome. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for being with us. And this is an extraordinary story, but I'm going to go right back to when you met Les. You were just 16. He was 17. And one of the first things you've said (laughs) attracted you to Les back then was his smell. He... Yes, he had a lovely male musk smell. He really did. <laughs> and you and you could um, clearly this all plays into what we're talking about today because your heightened sense of smell led you to reach this conclusion that you were attracted to him. Yes, yes, it was. It was a. Uh, I, I, I have always I have hereditary hyperosmia, so I've never liked people who wore a lot of perfumes and things like that. I've not been, well, not liked it. No, that's not the sense. I found it difficult to be with them, and uh, he didn't use anything. So you were always aware <laughs> that you you had this special gift or or this heightened sense yes. of smell. You got married to Les. You had three boys. You were living your life and then 10 years into your marriage, you noticed something. Will you explain to us what happened? Um, I didn't say anything at first because I just thought, well, it's the closed environment of theatre. And then I had to say to him one day, I said, look, I don't think you're showering enough. Uh, and he was quite truly upset. He said, I've had the showers money. I said, well, it must be theatre. What are you doing? You know, is there something in theatre? Mm-hmm. We should tell people that, that, no, that he, no. was a, he was a surgeon, wasn't uh, he? he was, yeah, he was, he was a consultant anaesthetist. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know, but perhaps it was the anaesthetic stuff because they didn't have the closed tubes. Or, but no, he became quite upset. So I just had to be quiet. <laughs> but you could definitely notice that something had changed. Oh, yes. It was very, very definite. It's quite a distinct smell. And people will tell you that. Yes, it's quite a distinct smell. So... Clearly, you didn't understand the significance of what you had noticed until Les got his diagnosis of Parkinson's. Now, will you take us through how that came about? What led you to that point where he got his diagnosis? Um, Well, I thought we thought with the changes in his mood and his attitude and everything, uh, he was a bit gruff. And I I thought he had a brain tumour. So we went off to Salford um, Hospital and he, in actual fact, now the Alistair Young, the consultant, said it it was, in fact, Parkinson's he had. But he could no longer hit veins because of his, his... He only had a slight tremor, but he could no longer hit the veins and he was very tired. Um, so long theatre lists were no longer... He could no longer keep up. So we came back to Scotland um, and then we went to this Parkinson's UK meeting. And that's when and I was, you, you got the smell? Yes. 
yes. I, I stood at the door and I remember Les, I, I can actually visualize Les looking back at me in a strange face as if, are you not coming in? <laughs> but as I walked through the door of this large room at the gateway, the smell hit me. And this, and, this uh, was the same smell that you had sensed years ago from Les. Well, he's, yes, he still had it. So, yes, he still had the smell. So I realised everybody else with Parkinson's in that room had the same smell. It's extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. But for poor Les, he was very young, wasn't he, when he was diagnosed? Oh, yes, he was uh, 40, 44. He was 44, yes. Did um, it have quick progression? It did. Uh, he died when he was 65, but the progression from uh, 50 onwards was very rapid and he had so many other things which norm- normally affect people with Parkinson's, you know, urinary system, heart problems, uh, pain, uh, tremor and uh, cognitive problems, cognitive problems as well. And did he accept that you had this ability and that you could smell that he had changed? Well, we used to joke about it in our 20s because I could smell everything and he could smell nothing because then he had lost his sense of smell. Mm-hmm. So it it occurred, that is a common thing in Parkinson's. So he had lost his sense of smell in our late 20s. About 25, 26, he had lost his sense of smell. Slowly but surely, but he was losing it. Um, and me... I had this wonderful sense of smell, so I smelt everything and he smelt nothing. <laughs> so he knew that you had, so, so he probably, I mean, that went some way to, to him accepting that you had noticed some change. Yes, yes, it did. So Claire asked Joy about getting involved with the research around Parkinson's. Well, before he died, I got my old Les back. As soon as he realised what this was, his medical background kicked in again. It was amazing. And uh, he said, right, we have to find the right scientists. So he looked at several meetings that were happening. But no, he chose uh, the stem cell uh, uh, meeting at Edinburgh University, which was Dr. Tilo Kunath. And And I stood up. Yeah. Yeah. I stood up and I said, why are we not using uh, the smell of Parkinson's to diagnose it earlier? And Professor Tilo Kunath is on the line from the University of <laughs> Edinburgh. You're very welcome, Professor Kunath. When, Hello, Claire. Hello. It, uh, nice, to, nice to be here. Is it fair to say that when Joy approached you first, w- were you sceptical about this? Uh, I think confused. <laughs> confused was the, was the best uh, description. Um, so this is going back nine years. It was April 2012. And yeah, she asked that question and I just didn't understand it, <laughs> I think was the main thing. And what happened then? What changed your mind or led you to investigate it further? Yeah, so I, so Joy was mentioning that her husband um, lost his sense of smell. So I think that's what I was, I thought she was getting at, because it's very common to lose your sense of smell in the early stages of Parkinson's. But she was uh, very clear, said, no, do, do people with Parkinson's smell different? So again, I, I just didn't, didn't think it was possible. I was extremely skeptical when she uh, explained what she really was asking. And um, I think I, I, didn't, I didn't follow up for at least eight, nine months, but um, I, I bumped into a cancer researcher in, in Edinburgh, and she mentioned that 
um, some diseases do have smells that you wouldn't expect to. So some cancers like melanoma, for example, has a unique odor. And and she convinced me that maybe it wasn't so far-fetched. So you remember so, Joy and you say, I'm going to track that woman down now and find out what she was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Joy knows the story very, very, uh, very familiar, but I didn't speak to her directly after that day, that meeting. It was months and months later, and then it was through interviews and discussions and, and lengthy uh, questioning, I was essentially interrogating her, that I began to, uh, you know, think, mm, maybe she has something, something yeah. to it. Joy, did it feel like an interrogation? <laughs> no, no, no. He, he's very persuasive, is uh, Tilo. <laughs> no. But, but Tilo, you, you came up with a test, you devised a test yourself. Can you explain what you came up with? Yeah, so it was devised with some local people with Parkinson's as well, and 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 they it was essentially the, the now famous T-shirt test, because well, you know one idea was to have people walk by, uh, you know, with her blindfolded, but people walk, you know, have a shuffle, etc. So the idea of completely blinded, um, give people T-shirts, uh, 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 have them bathe without any um, uh, scented soaps. And cut up the T-shirts in half, uh, bag them, code them, and then ask Joy to tell us who had Parkinson's and who didn't. And that uh, T-shirt test, she was incredibly, incredibly accurate. And so, so then I was absolutely convinced that she had this superpower. So, how accurate was Joy with the T-shirt test? Yeah. So we had uh, it was a small, small group, so six with and six without Parkinson's, and we cut the T-shirts in half. So she, she had 24 samples to, to go through. And she was um, 11 out of 12. So she, she, um, she identified the um, six uh, people with Parkinson's. And then she said five of them didn't. But then she, she said this individual here in both halves of the T-shirt, she, she said this is, this is definitely Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. But it, was, um, it wasn't. It was someone who, um, who was in our control group. And um, so I thought 11 out of 12 is, uh, people is, is not bad. That's pretty good. You know, uh, you know, this is very uh, statistically significant. But then um, the, the one individual that she was arguing had Parkinson's but wasn't in uh, uh, Parkinson's group, um, he was in our control group, uh, came down with Parkinson's months, months later. So um, then <laughs> I realized she was absolutely... So that was you know, 12, 12 out of 12. 12 she out was of 12. Yeah, she had, this individual had Parkinson's um, before anyone knew, before he knew, before I knew, before any of his uh, clinicians. So Joy spoke about her husband Les's wishes to continue the research. And, and Joy, the possibility that your sense of smell could help with research into ways, new ways of diagnosing Parkinson's, how did that impact Les in the final years of his life? How did he feel about that? Well, it was only months uh, before he died. It was uh, before we started, as Tilo said, there was a big gap. And um, But he believed it. He totally believed it. And on his deathbed, the night before he died, he made me promise I would continue the work. Mm-hmm. So it was very uh, important to him that you follow through yes. on this. Yes, because uh, we were both in the era where uh, early diagnosis was a thing diabetes, cancers, etc. Uh, we were brought up on that with the first white paper into medicine that you you find diseases early, you treat them and you help people. Mm-hmm. And that's my, that's the way I think about it. And clearly in your own family, you'd gone through a number of years where his behaviour was changing and you didn't know yes. why. So if you'd had the comfort of an early diagnosis, it would have provided a lot of explanation for you. 
Oh, I think that would make a huge difference to people. Um, I, you know, the, I don't think people realise the people who are going through it or have gone through it would tell you it is very, very stressful that pre-diagnosis, and it's years. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets Parkinson's and they're diagnosed. It can be as much as ten years. So, Tilo, now we know that Joy's skills are proper and correct because you've done this test. But with her help now, other researchers have made breakthroughs by developing a test which can identify with people with Parkinson's disease. Correct, yeah. So um, the real um, efforts behind all this work is uh, Professor Perdita Barron, who was at Edinburgh at the time. So the, the work started in Edinburgh, but she had moved her lab to Manchester. This is why um, the, the stories in the news at the moment, uh, her and her team came out with a, a, a fantastic paper yesterday that can uh, detect differences in, in Parkinson's uh, uh, skin um, using a really, really simple, uh, not simple, but, but very cheap and very quick test, um, this uh, uh, iron mobility mass spectrometry that, that she's an expert at. So her team came out with this amazing paper yesterday, which uh, I'm not involved in. I'm not an author on it, yes. just to be clear. But, um, but it's, it's really, really fantastic. Uh, it's, I think it's a game-changing paper. So they, they have discovered why Joy noticed this change in smell rather than having Joy trying to go around diagnosing Parkinson's which would never be feasible or finding people like Joy would be very difficult but they've identified why Joy was able to smell this Correct. Yeah. So, so they've had uh, several papers already. This is sort of uh, the culmination of, of, of a lot of work. They've identified some of the odorous uh, compounds that Joy is smelling, but most importantly, they've identified uh, some of the lipids. So there are some lipids present on the skin in this substance called sebum. It's the greasy stuff on our, on our skin, on our forehead, for example. It's really different in Parkinson's. So they've been able to molecularly identify these differences and come up with a really uh, cheap and quite quick uh, test for it. And so just simply uh, using a Q-tip to swab the back of, of patients. So this is the, this was the big deal like, that came re- out yesterday. It's remarkable. Yeah. I, I yeah. wonder how Les would feel, Joy, about this if you could see the result of your work. He would be so pleased. He would really be very, very pleased. Um, he, I, um, I don't, I'm not exaggerating. He became the old Les as soon as he realised what it meant. To him, it was a uh, tangible. He could see it happening. Um, um, so yes, he would be very, very pleased. And the work goes on because you're working with other scientists too on other diseases. Yes, yes, I have been out to Tanzania twice. Um, I I have enjoyed my work out there with Apopo. Um, they do detection of mines. It's the great African pouch rat. If you go onto the Apopo site and put in and go down to the the smell conference that I was I lectured at earlier on this year, um, you will see me with my little well, not so little great African pouch rat. <laughs> what an extraordinary story, Joy Milne and Professor Tilo. Kunath from today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy show, musician Cormac Begley of one of the best known traditional music families in Ireland was talking to Ray about a fire that destroyed the Lynch Begley ancestral home in Kerry. Now at the end of this month, the people of Kerry and the wider community will come together for a concert in aid of Eileen Nee Vugliuch. Uh, Eileen is a well-known member of the talented Begley family. And she tragically lost her home due to a fire back in August. 
Her nephew, Cormac Begley, joins me now from our Limerick studios. Hello, Cormac. Hi, Ray. Thanks very much for having me. I, I believe you've been um, testing out the piano there in our Limerick studio. I was keeping myself busy, yeah. <laughs> uh, trying to learn a tune. It was. <laughs> it's a lovely room, isn't it? Oh, it's a lovely room, yeah. yeah. It's a lovely yeah. piano, too. Yeah, it's a yeah. Jeffers piano. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a sitting room down there. We were there uh, at the beginning of August. Uh, yeah. good, good to talk to you again, Cormac. Congratulations too, on the album. Yeah. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I, I just love the rawness of it and um, uh, your performance on the main stage more of that please thank you very much oh, thanks very much <laughs> yeah, thanks yeah. thanks for you thank you yeah. um, now so the Begley's for those people who don't know about the Begley's which is a musical traditional Irish music dynasty uh, based on the Dingle Peninsula just fill us in give us a, a sort of a, a brief history well a brief history well I, I come from um, a clan from West Kerry uh, Begley's uh, that's the English for Beog Leach Beog meaning small and Leach warrior or uh, hero and so my ancestors are small warriors and we came over from Scotland originally and after the Battle of Kinsale um, that side of my family after we lost that battle uh, we ended up in West Kerry from the 1600s onwards um, but in Bile in the Buck uh, where my father and his family uh, his eight eight uh, siblings grew up um, there's been a house there for maybe 250 300 years and on the 20th of um, August last uh, there was a fire uh, in my auntie Eileen's house she inherited the house uh, about 20 years ago um, she's 77 years old uh, she's she's the queen of our family and uh, a lovely lovely lady um, great singer and on that night, uh, her daughter and her son were in the house at about 10 o'clock at night and the house, the house went on fire. And thankfully, her uh, grandson Liam um, alerted his mother and grandmother uh, about the fire. And thankfully, everybody got out um, safely and uh, nobody was hurt. Mm. But yeah. 250 years in the family? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, if the walls could talk, um, there's a, there's a good few albums in the walls. If they could record, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a few re- albums recorded there, and uh, it's a lot of history. A lot of musicians that have passed there, uh, passed through, and have probably had stayed over there and yeah. party there over the years. Yeah. Um, a lot of people you would have known, like probably household names, like the likes of Martin Hayes, Christy Moore, Mary Black, Francis Black. Uh, Limo Flynn um, and countless others. Um, um, and so, just, what, yeah. they'd be invited down specially for a session or it would happen by accident or what way did it work? Um, well, uh, my uncle, Seamus, and my father, Brendan Play, my, my aunties, um, Josephine, Eileen, uh, Kathleen, they're all singers. And when you're a musician and when you're travelling, you're, you're, uh, your family become the people that you, you're on the road with mm. and they get to know a lot of musicians and um, naturally enough, they'd, when they're down in Dingle, they'd come to Ban the Buck and um, maybe spend a night there. And uh, there might be a party, party yeah. there. And um, you have to sing for your supper. Uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the house, so it, it, it looks like um, a traditional farmhouse to me. Is, is that what it is yeah. or was? A traditional traditional farmhouse. Um, um, as I said, it's. 250 years old yeah. and is passed down through the, the Lynch uh, lineage and uh, my grandfather and grandmother lived there f- uh, uh, f- for f- a long time. Is um, it in the mountains? 
Um, it's 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 in a, a parish called Prost de Moruch. It's it's just below Mount Brandon on the west side of right. Prost de Moruch. It's, it's probably the quieter uh, uh, parish, quietest parish on the Dingle Peninsula. Um, Gwerthacht area everyone speaks Irish there and um, in that in that townland by the book um, most of my family lived there a lot of my uncles and um, aunties and my father lived there and a lot of my cousins so it's um, and you you were brought up in Dublin but you spent an awful lot of time down there as a child yes yes what are um, your memories um, well I've, I've I've a lot lot of most of my memories are from from West Kerry like I was uh, I'm often slagged about being um, born in Dublin, um, but uh, and it's it's a yeah it's it's a tough thing to to, to carry that I was born in Dublin, <laughs> but uh, I have from high authority that I was conceived in Kerry, <laughs> which <laughs> so I think a lot of people think they're from a certain area, but I think they might have to ask some tougher questions. <laughs> but um, but I, I have a lot of memories from coming down to, to, to Kerry. My father was a school teacher in Dublin and for five months a year he used to come down to, to West Kerry. Uh, my mother lived in the neighbouring um, village, Ballero, and a lot of my clearest memories are from living uh, and uh, being down in West Kerry. Uh, I have a lot of memories from being in that house, Eileen's house, uh, with my grandmother and uh, my grandfather. And... Um, um, and spend the time with my cousins down there. So Ray asked about the night of the fire. The night of the fire, um, there was a tent in a field with a concert going. What, what was going on there? Yeah, um, just ironically, there was there was a there was a, a travelling uh, theatre company called Footsbarn, and uh, back in two thousand eighteen, September two thousand eighteen, they came to to West Kerry and they pitched a tent uh, on my uncle Seamus's land, and there was a weekend of. Um, of theatre and concerts and it was a brilliant brilliant weekend and uh, in August on the same weekend as the fire um, they came to perform for five nights um, they performed a, sh- a, a theatre piece called The Crock of Gold and my father Brondon and Glenn Hansard were doing the music for the, for the play and um, after the play there's usually a break and then there's different artists every night running from Thursday to Monday with likes of Stephen James Smith uh, Junior Brother um, Ronan O'Snodig and Miles O'Reilly and a lot of other musicians my, my family ended up playing on the Monday night um, mm. but uh, on the Saturday night uh, during the concert at around 10 o'clock um, um, my, my uh, Eileen's grandson uh, Liam, uh, Liam, yeah. um, after uh, after his mother and grandmother left the building, they went over to to my cousin Neil Neil O'Bilkley, Seamus O'Bilkley's son, and he called the um, uh, the fire brigade and uh, alerted his father, and a lot of people came and tried to put out the fire. So um, while while there was a t- big massive tent with 400 people <laughs> enjoying a concert there was a, there was a fire right. uh, down the road less than a kilometre away Yeah and did you, you it was obviously still burning when you came upon it I came upon it I think it was around 20 past 10 I was actually on the way down I, I, I had been to the play that night in the tent and I was on the way down uh, to my own uh, dwelling to watch the, the Usyk Joshua heavyweight fight and uh um, there was my Seamus drove by me in the van kind of uh, quickly and I, was, I wondered was there something up and then I checked my phone and I had a text from my sister Cleana to say that um, the Shanahig the old house was on fire so I looked out and I could see it in flames so I went over and um, it was a very hard sight 
to watch to be honest just yeah. uh, anyone who's seen the fire will, will tell you but in a home and um, like some, and just all the memories and um, there's so many people around like fire brigade were called like uh, a lot of the community came out um, um, and, uh, and the fire brigade yeah. came out from Dingle it took them 15 minutes and yeah. they did everything they could they did well. The, the fire was uh, nearly under control by the fire brigade, and uh, my uncle Seamus and everyone around were were filling buckets of water and throwing it uh, and, uh, at, at at the fire. And it was nearly under control. And um, as bad luck would have it, uh, the fire brigade uh, ran out of water, and oh they needed to go and get a refill. And by the time they came back, and um, the fire had spread. And a fire brigade came from Tralee and from Killarney as well. Um, but by that at that stage, the house was lost. So we just had to kind of yeah. withstand by helplessly. And that was probably the most painful uh, thing. And I was, was Eileen uh, watching that happen? Eileen went over to my 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 father's house. Just not, not, no, she 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 wasn't watching that. No, but, no, because that'd be too, a bit too much. Yeah, but, because watching your yeah. all your worldly possessions go up in flames. Yeah, and all, all the members. I'll, I'll I'll never forget it. I was there. With, uh, my sister and my cousins and and my uncle and my father were all watching it like up in flames, and it was just it just felt so helpless. But like you could just see all the memories. Uh, Everything just uh, up, up in flames, yeah. and just, just the feeling of helplessness and shock, and um, yeah. And there's like we watch, we see um, houses on fire in movies and TV programs, um, but there's that noise, the, the, the noise, and I'm sure there's strong smells as well. Are there? Yeah, uh, the flames is like a, a roaring blaze, like walls fly, uh, like fallen. Um, there was. Uh, we'd have to stand a good bit back because we knew that there was like two or three gas tanks in there and the explosions of gas tanks and um, yeah, right. yeah. And, and and as you say the helplessness of it all uh, and all the memories and um, so that that's 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 a, a, a tragedy um, now the house was insured it was insured yeah, yeah but um, there's a but there's a but um, with the increase in inflation and the cost of um, uh, building materials increasing the, the price over the last, uh, particularly over the last six months, but over during the COVID period, uh, the cost of building has really increased and the premium um, uh, and the insurance will cover just under half the cost of, uh, of right. a rebuild. So, so you're doing a benefit concert. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's in St. Mary's Church in Dingle. And, Dingle. and so it's at the end of the month. It's uh, on fr- Friday the 30th in St. Mary's Church in Dingle, opposite uh, Dick Max Pub. Cormac Begley from the Ray Darcy Show. And in the morning, there was an interesting conversation between Ryan Tuberty and writer Robert Harris about his new book, Act of Oblivion. I feel like <laughs> the two of us are exhaling after two years. I know. It's so nice to see you face to face again. Yeah. I've got so sick of Zoom oh, calls so. and the rest of it. I'm kind of triggered by it. Somebody says, we'll do that on a Zoom. I'm going, no. No, I rather hate not. it. Hate it. It's so good to be out and about again and back in Dublin. And congratulations on Act of, of Oblivion. It's just a terrific, a terrific book. You must be thrilled with the reviews. They're glowing. Yeah, I, well, obviously, yeah, I am pleased. Uh, you know, you, ne- you finish a book, you never know what people are going to make of yeah. it. But um, no, this one um, has does seem to have hit the hit the court. And who would have thought that? Well, a couple of Puritan colonels on the run. I, and- <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I'm going to be straight with you because... 
when I saw the 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 the, the blurb or the certainly the thoughts of what this book was about, I thought. Oh no, Robert! I, I'm going to have to work for this because I know very little about the British, the English Civil War, and I care probably even less. And then I picked it up within two pages. I thought I want to devour every book I can on this subject. We have a very tricky relationship with Oliver Cromwell. We'll get to all of these things in a moment. But this is what you do: you take, and I love that. We'll, we'll talk about the macro. We'll get into the micro in a moment, where you take politics. Uh, essentially, from th- what feels like the modern age, and you simply put them into togas or roundheads <laughs> or papal conclaves. It, 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 your books have that lovely sense of contemporary, and yet we're brought to totally different parts of uh, the space-time continuum. Amazing. Oh well, thank you. That's. I mean, that is politics fascinates me. Power, struggle for power, and actually, there is no well, few better stories than the English Civil War because yeah. it was a real battle for power and it shaped uh, England of course but also Ireland and all the, all the rest of the of Europe really it was a massive event but let's talk about the book for a moment the the if you could give us the nutshell versions to, to bring people along who haven't read it yet which is probably most people in fairness yeah sure uh, well the title act of oblivion comes from some comes from an actual parliamentary act which was called i think something like the act of forgetting and oblivion um and uh, this was passed in the summer of 1660 when charles the first son charles came back from exile and parliament invited the king to come back um and under the provisions of this act, all the uh, crimes of the Civil War, taking up arms against the king, all of that was forgiven and forgotten. That was the deal. But there was one exception, and that was anyone who'd signed a death warrant or been a judge of Charles I. They were required to surrender for the king's mercy. There were 59 signatures of the death warrant and about 100 or so judges. A lot of them had died, of course, but those that were still alive, um, they all had to give themselves up. Uh, those that gave themselves up were very stupid to do so because it quickly became apparent that there wasn't going to be any mercy mm. and a lot of the others fled. They fled to Holland, uh, Switzerland, Germany and the two that I follow, I find most interesting, fled to America. Father-in-law and son-in-law, two colonels. The older one was Cromwell's cousin. And they went on the run together. And what I... This is all true. Yes. What I invented was a man on their tail, uh, a regicide hunter, the man who coordinates the hunt for all of these characters. He's called Richard Naylor. He works for the Privy Council. Uh, and so I cut between these two, yeah. the chaser and the chaser. And what a hunt it is. <clears throat> it reminded me of sometimes like a Western. Yes. Did, I thought a bit of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when I was writing like it. That. Yes, because I thought, how do I humanise these yeah. colonels? I mean, Puritans in themselves are pretty hard, tough to take, 17th century Puritan. But 17th century Puritan colonel is really going it. Who killed the king? Uh, so uh, they call themselves, they're Ned and Will... And I did find sympathetic sides to them, actually. And also as a reader, you're always on the side of the people on the run, I think. Yes. Or if you're at the cinema. And they are, they're just being pursued by the man in the white hat. Every time they think they've reached safety. Yes. Here he comes again. And they had a big reward on their heads. uh, And they moved, they were hidden by the Puritan community in... um, in in New England, and they hid in cellars and in attics and in barns, and sometimes they were out in the open in caves. 
Um, it's, a, it's a story of survival, really. And Ryan asked Robert about the Puritans, the religious group that banned Christmas. They're really kind of uh, the 17th century equivalent of ISIS or the Taliban. They are... That bad? Yeah, they uh, defaced uh, churches, t- tore out altar rails, tore down um, statues and paintings in church. Uh, but Cromwell himself burnt a lot of it. They went on the rampage, destroying all images, very mm. much like uh, the Taliban. Uh, they suppressed uh, Christmas. Um, the, st- the incident in the novel where Wally and Goff uh, come in to the private chapel on the Strand and break break up the Christmas service, that is described in John Evelyn's diaries. They actually, these two guys did it. Yeah. So I put in that congregation the man who later will come after them, uh, Naylor, uh, and yes, they 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 abolished all, the, closed down the theatres and so on, uh, and they were alert for any backsliding. Um, you know, it was their way or the highway, really. Um, Isn't it funny how how it like it was all about God and how God fearing they were and whatever, but the bloodthirsty savagery. I mean, your description of I always think you were hung, drawn, and quartered. Never read it in its mm. visceral description the way you do could you tell us with all the gory glory that you do what hung drawn and quarters means and well so yes. many people were okay those of a nervous disposition turn off now <laughs> come back in 30 seconds yes well you were dragged on a on a like a kind of gate or hurdle uh, through the streets of london over the cobbles for all the way from the tower of london to tyburn or so, some of these were actually executed at charing cross so they could see the banqueting house where they King had been uh, killed. Uh, then you were uh, you made a speech. They made long speeches to the thousands there. Then they were hanged until they were unconscious. Then they were cut down. Then they were revived. Uh, then they were castrated. And then their stomachs were opened and their entrails pu- pulled out. I mean, 30 feet of entrails and burnt in front of them. Um, and then they got down to business, really. <laughs> and uh, so... What is extraordinary, though, is how many of them, almost all of them, went to this death, this terrible death, almost happily, yes. because they thought that this is suffering like Christ's and that they would be in heaven um, very shortly. And they were, they were regarded it as a kind of badge of honor. I mean, they were this, one of them, actually, Major General Harrison, who was the first to be executed, actually somehow managed to work his arm free, and he hit the executioner in the side of the head. I mean, these were tough guys. <laughs> these were revolutionaries, um, you know, and formidable, yes. formidable characters. You know, um, I was in London yesterday, and you, you, when you're passing through Westminster, especially this week of weeks, we'll talk about that later, and you see a statue of Oliver Cromwell and you think, how is he still there, right? Now, you're on Irish turf today, Robert, mm-hmm. and I think that Irish, I get the sense that British people have a very interesting relationship with Oliver Cromwell. I want to talk to you about it now because if we were in a population of, say, 2 million and 200,000 people are slaughtered by one man's hand, essentially, uh, obviously he wouldn't be considered a great hero here. Um, where does he stand in British history and how is he still considered to be such a... What I'll say is, as a as a subplot to my point is this, part of me was thinking, should we not as Irish people be rooting for Cromwell at one point as a Republican, as somebody who's not into the monarchy? A very peculiar <laughs> diversity of feeling here. Yes, well, I mean, of course, I appreciate the sensibilities in Ireland, and it was it was a great relief to me to find that neither Wally nor Gough, my... Uh, uh, 
uh, heroes, in the sense of the book, came to Ireland mm. on that terrible expedition in 1649. And indeed, Edward Wally, the older of the two, opposed the expedition and uh, opposed the, the, the punitive um, sanctions and, the, and the, tr the transplanting and the rest of it. Yeah. Um, Cromwell is, it's, it's an absolute irony that Cromwell's statue stands outside the Houses of Parliament because no man in history has closed down Parliament more often than Oliver Cromwell, once famously with a file of soldiers. Um, you know, he was uh, a military dictator. Yeah. Um, he was an extraordinary figure. There's no doubt about that. That he has a he had a curious blend of characteristics of uh, otherworldliness and ambition, of sentimentality and cruelty. Um, he, he believed he was doing God's work, and this yes. is one of the things that is a strand in my books. Whenever people feel something like that, be careful because they feel that they are licensed to do anything. God is allowing them to do it. And uh, so I, I'm sure he went to his grave with an untroubled conscience mm. about the massacres in Ireland because he would have believed that this was God's will. It was happening because God willed it. And Ryan asked Robert about puritanical roots in modern America. Let me ask you a bit about the, the fact that the two, as you call them, heroes made their way across the Atlantic Ocean and they, America was kind of starting out with the colonists. And you, you get the sense, whether it's through um, Second Amendment, uh, love of guns or, again, that intense religious fervour, uh, that even in 17th century America, as it was starting off then, that maybe that's where it all started. That sense that of of what we now see, whether it's the Capitol Hill riots or you know that that certain tranche of opinion in in modern day America, that it it it's it's it, you can trace it back centuries. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think the the, the DNA of uh, America today is laid down in the seventeenth century, a fundamental strand of it, um, and that is well, first of all, anti the British monarchy. Uh, that strain, the, uh, the Puritan communities in uh, North America were very slow and reluctant to recognise Charles II. And they, one of the reasons these guys were able to stay alive was because the Puritans protected them. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got that. You've got the, you've got the, they had militias and Wally and Gough being two of the most experienced soldiers uh, in the world, really, um, trained the militias. And mm -hmm. that, there was a sort of embryo army to take on the British there. They thought, they started to think that maybe we could stand against the English if they come for us. You have the religious fervour, which you still see. There are still towns in New England that are dry, you know, and you can't get an alcoholic drink. And their peculiar attitude to drink, you know, you have to be over 21 to have a drink. And yet you can go and buy the most deadly assault yeah. weapons uh, when you're a teenager. Yes. I mean, this is a, it's all these things, and, and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, for instance, at a time when the rest of the world, like Ireland, are all... You know, keener on on the, on allowing women the right to have that choice if they want. All these, I think, you can trace back to the, that Puritan beginning. But let's go with that thought for a moment: the Roe versus Wade overturning and and the kind of post Trump. I know he's still there, but post Trump four years, if you like, uh, lurch to the the far right, the mad right. In some ways, I'm not, I'm not giving out about the right. The right is the right. The left is the left. But that that other world we're talking about, that has 
shades of Puritanism. That has shades of for certainly stepping back. People talk about Gilead and, you know, the, the, the Handmaid's Tale vibe off it. And certainly reading your book, and the, 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 when you've got God on your side, there's no such thing as wrong. Yes, I mean, I'm not sure about the theology, but I think a lot of the fundamentalist Christian right there support Israel, for instance, because they believe that is the harbinger of the second coming. Um, Which and, features in your book. Yes, yes because yes, these, these guys, millennialists, one of the reasons they kept on running was they were sure that in a few years, in 1666, Christ would return to earth mm -hmm. uh, and the rule of the saints would begin and they would be among the elect. And this is very serious belief and this persists today. And I think any visitor to America for the first time is struck by the religious radio programs and broadcasts and the extent that this you know, is is in modern American politics. It's I can't think of any other country that's like that. Uh, your love of politics is uh, is is I, if I could say so, matched by my own. I'm fascinated by it because your your dad didn't. It was never really into sport. And while I do, and I'm sure you're the same, admire and appreciate sport, politics is your sport and my sport. And I always say the American presidential elections are, are Olympics, aren't they? And, you know, the others are kind of different <laughs> European championships <laughs> yes. or whatever. You, know, you have analogies. The four nations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever you want yeah. to call it. Uh, but uh, with, with that in mind, you know, you look at uh, American politics. So you were a friend of... Tony Blair's. I notice everyone says that in the past tense. Why is that? <laughs> well, that might be because of my novel, The Ghost, uh, and the uh, characterization. Uh, yes, of... the, the suggestion that he he is aimlessly living uh, a life in fear of a war crimes prosecution. He, he was uh, a, uh, a friend. Um, Someone asked me about it the other day, and uh, did I have any contact? And I don't really, but I still do get a Christmas card. There's some you? sort of I'm on some computer-generated list. <laughs> Obviously, they can't switch off in some way, but you know, I, 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 I don't think there's any great hard yeah. feelings. At least, you know. Do you I, think history will be kind to Tony Blair, or will history judge him harshly? Uh, I think it'll be a mixed verdict. Uh, I think they will have to say he was immensely gifted politician who won three general elections. Um, but then it all started to go wrong, and no, I can't see how history is ever going to say that the Iraq invasion of Iraq yeah. was anything other than a blunder. Um, he'll so get marks, that, yeah, he'll get marks for effort for the Northern Ireland peace process, no Northern doubt. Ireland but the Iraq process, thing was just a fiasco. And yeah. I think modernising uh, the message of the left. Robert Harris from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.